think we're time, huh? Yeah. All right. I've got the thumbs up here to go. Hey, welcome back from the beach. And, uh, you know, probably some of you guys probably should have just stayed out there, right? It's such a good day. <laughs> we could move this out to the beach maybe, huh? How about that? Yeah. <laughs> well, this one, this workshop is, uh, is uh, really a different one. Uh, I think that in, in the sense that uh, I'm, I'm viewing this from a personal and professional development sort of thing. Because uh, one of the things that I think this concerned me too is as I'm, I'm out in the, um, the working world and, and working in organizations, um, and I'm always thinking about uh, how does an individual today not only uh, stay relevant, but contrib contrib continue to contribute value? And I think for um, a follower of Christ, that's a really a critical question. Because if you, as a follower of Christ, uh, want to have really an opportunity to have influence, if all of a sudden you become irrelevant, then really your message, I think, in terms of the marketplace becomes dead. And so I think that more than ever, I think that those that are called followers of Christ should be the ones that are really leading the charge in terms of personal and professional de development so that in terms of their voice, their influence, their ability to be of value to society, you know, you're leading it rather than lagging behind it all the time. And so that's, I developed this um, workshop for uh, a corporate audience, really, initially, uh, because I felt like what was happening with a lot of people in, in business is that you, you, you get your education, you have an initial thrust of learning as you're trying to become competent, so I say in your career field, and then what I find is that by the time a lot of leaders, a lot of people in their professions have been in their profession five years or so, a complacency sets in. And then by the time you're, you're, you're about 40 years old, I just see a lot of people, they just level off and they've plateaued with their life, their career, their learning. And uh, I, just, I just think that that's, that's, we just can't do that, you know. The other part of it, I think, sometimes is that we rely on the fact that we, we just probably up to this point in time, you know, many of you are the smartest person in the room. And, uh, and I tell my leaders all the time that I'm working with, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. You know, you need, you need to be around people that are going to challenge you and, and you've got to be open to learning and growing. And um, so... As we're going through here, I'm going to ask a lot of questions, um, you know, just to kind of get your perspective on a number of these things. But I want to share with you some of the lessons that I've learned in terms of being a lifelong learner and, and, and dive into that. The other interesting thing here is that the word disciple literally means a learner. So if you're thinking about this, this is discipleship is not separate, separate from learning. It is about learning. Obviously, we're learning about the Lord. And we're learning about, you know, the ways of God and our role in the world. But I think it's broader than that because the gifts that God has given you really impact, you know, all the dimensions of your life in a holistic way. And um, so I'm going to go move on through here. So, you know, when you think about being a lifelong learner, what, what is, when I say lifelong learner, what does that mean to you? You know, what, when you think, when you, when you hear that phrase, you know, what, what is it? You know, what are the reasons that you could think of for becoming a lifelong learner and why that would be important? Yeah. Okay. 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 Good. Yeah. What else? 
Is it important? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's that part of that agility yesterday, right? So what else? Yeah. Almost like you're, not only does the world around you change, but like your life stage changes. Sure. Your responsibility changes. Sure. And, and, you know, you discover new things about yourself, you know, wh where you think you are and what you want to do going in, you know, 10 years later, you may find that you've, you've got a whole gift set and a whole set of passions that you didn't know about, you know, that you discover. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask, though, then, what is the difference in your mind between, say, learning as you go along and being a lifelong learner? Intentionality versus reaction. Okay, what else? What else would you think? Yeah, yeah. But you can see the difference. I think a lot of people feel like they're learning, but basically they're learning as they go along. You know, they're in a new job situation, so, okay, we got to go to this training or, you know, we got to go to these classes or something like that. And a lot of times it's the learning is not with respect to who you are and the development of your gifts and capabilities as a, as a person, you know, and so it's very narrow in terms of the way you're learning. And right now, probably even like your, your college education is a little bit more that way rather than your development as a whole person, you know, so your, your learning is very specialized, you know, and, and, and it's really preparatory to some field that you want to get into something, a profession that you want to engage in. And it's necessary. It's a necessary step, but you can see that there's a whole nother level of learning beyond all of that. So I want you to just kind of think here for a second. And what would be your, you know, your top five reasons for, for learning, becoming a lifelong learner? This is where you guys talk. So <laughs> yeah, keep sharp. Okay. What else? Right. So st being a steward of the mind, the intellect that God's given you. Uh, okay, great. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. That's right. That's right. Sometimes hear stories in ministry or work, whatever, like people who start out really good, like at our age, but then by the time they're like in their 50s and 60s, they've like totally become irrelevant or faltered off in some way. So, like avoiding becoming that. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's the world that I live in a lot of times because I'm I'm dealing with people that are that stage of their career, their life, and I can see the consequences not only to them personally, but to the organizations that they're a part of and leading. So, yeah, that's an excellent point. A couple others? Yeah. They're trying to read traditional <clears throat> Okay. That's right. And that references back to what I shared uh, last night in terms of the sons of Issachar, who understood the times you know, and, and knew what to do. 
So there's an important understanding. Let's get one more here. So yeah, keeps things exciting. You know, I that I'll say amen to that. So, <laughs> so you know, I think that um, when I think about that, and I think this kind of relates to your point, I really feel like learning and being a lifelong learner is really an expression of the stewardship of your life, of the gifts and abilities and the opportunities that God's given you. And if you're not learning, I don't feel like you can be a good steward of the life and the opportunity that God has given to you. And as I mentioned earlier, I think that one of the things that concerns me is what I just see is a lot of times what they call a, uh, um, a five-year plateau. How many of you uh, have read any of Malcolm Gladwell's stuff like that, the book, The Outliers? Are you familiar with that? And, and what, tell me about the 10,000-hour the rule and, and The Outliers. Do you remember that? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. That's right. Yeah, and there's a number of people that have referenced that 10,000-hour rule that, you know, people say, well, you know, is that, is that, you know, were you made or you were born, you know, in terms of that talent? And, and his study, and others have referenced this, has said, said, really, the people that achieve that level of mastery really have put in the time. And they, and, and they, they could see that there was kind of a 10,000-hour rule. Now, what's interesting, though, is that my daughter played uh, collegiate soccer and, you know, played in, in three uh, Final Fours. And, um, and, and, and so we just looked at this in terms of soccer in the United States. And I think that on the world stage, I don't think that the United States is necessarily considered a soccer powerhouse, right? But when, when, when we were examining it, <clears throat> you have a lot of good players. But when we, when we began to count up and say, by the time uh, a kid starts uh, kind of in youth soccer, and, and goes to practices, the number of practices and games and the requisite tournaments, and it accelerates, let's say, as they get on through high school, that the average number of hours that an American youth soccer player invests to get to that level ends up being about 5,000 hours. And so you can see that, what that what's happened is that we're, we're developing, really, people to a level of competence, but not really to a level of excellence and mastery. And, and, and so that what, what that what that requires, though, to get to 10,000 hours is really a commitment to learning and to deliberate practice. And, and, and that's a whole nother conversation, what deliberate practice is versus practice, you know. Um, and so I think that what, we're, what happens, though, is I find that a lot of times in the professional realm that people will go through and they'll get a degree or they'll have training or they'll be in their profession for a certain level of time and they reach a level of competency. And then what happens is that you're good enough that you become complacent. And, there, and, there, and there's not a, a continuing development to take it to another level. And so... You know, we've got to stay hungry in these matters. So let me just think, let's just kind of, we were talking about the benefits of lifelong learning. So when you think about teachability and a person being teachable, what are some of the signs that a person is not teachable? Okay. Someone says that's stubborn. Okay, okay. What else? Ignorant? Pride? When they respond, yes, but. Okay, okay. All right. Someone, they don't listen. Okay, what else? What are the other signs that a person's not teachable? 
They don't ask for advice, right? Uh huh. What's that? They don't change. What else? Yeah. They push back. Okay. Okay. Any other slides? Yeah. They're, they think they're always right. Yeah. There's a lot of rooms full, full of people like that, huh? <laughs> what else? So let's let's say then let's take the opposite side. What are the signs that a person is a learner? Yeah, they're curious. Yeah, yeah. Open mind. Open mind. They take notes. Okay. Attentive. What else? Ask questions. Ask questions. Read a lot. What else? Willing to change. Okay. What else you see? Okay. 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 There, it's, it's the opposite of the complacency, right? Yeah. In that regard, yeah. What? Yeah. Really like seek out opportunities, not just taking them when they're there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Did you have another one? They're willing to invest time. Yep. 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 Yes, sir. Okay. Okay. So you know, I think that you've got a handle on that. And so, but I, I like this quote by Eric Hoffer, who is an American philosopher. And he wrote that in a time of drastic change, it's the learners who inherit the future. The learned usually find themselves equipped to live in a world that no longer exists. What, 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 does, what triggers in your mind when you read that? Adaptability, right? How fluid the world is, right? What? Yeah, you're always chasing it, aren't you? <laughs> what else? Any other thoughts on this? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Expand on that a little bit more. <laughs> okay. I, I didn't know you could figure out how to live together with nine dudes in a college <laughs> ministry house, but <laughs> there must be a formula in there, right, that you've learned. But, but <laughs> we won't we won't go there, okay. We'll we'll stop right here on that one there. But you know, yesterday when I was talking about the VUCA world, you know, one thing that I pointed out was that we don't, we live in complex times and even chaotic times. When, when times are, are, are more, just, just say, just complicated or simple, you can, you can apply the rules of the past to solve the problems. And it may be complicated, but it's just, basically it's a permutation of the simple situation kind of multiplied out. But when you get into a world of complexity and chaos, you can only learn your way forward. And so you have to have really the, the discipline of being able to ask questions, try things, learning from them, and moving forward. And I think that um, 
there, there are guys like Peter Senge, who's a, you know, kind of a giant in the systems thinking world. It talks about a learning organization, a, an organization that every day is smarter and able to do better tomorrow than the very best that did today. Because the whole collective uh, group of people that are in that organization are learning and thinking about what's going on. And so you have to really be present in the situation, aware of what's going on, and be thinking about it. And I think that that's the same thing in the ministry world. We're right now, we're in a situation that is so chaotic, right? And, and, and so complex. And we're, we're disciples, we're learners. We have, we have really the foundation of the scriptures. But in terms of how do we communicate to the world? How do we connect with the world? How do we bring solutions that the world needs? You know, we've got to learn our way forward, which means that we're going to have to try things in terms of the way we interact with people and engage with the people around us and our communities and organizations. And this is a very important piece to this. And, you know, from a business standpoint, <clears throat> uh, Marty Neumeyer, who's a, a marketing specialist, says it's a competitive world and the best way to outrun your competitors is to, is to outlearn them. And, I, and I, I can't tell you how hard that is for companies and organizations anymore that the, the idea is that we've been in business for a while, we know exactly what we're doing, we've, we've seen it all, we know it all, and this is how you, how you approach the world. And almost all of those are absolutely brutal organizations that are getting crushed, you know, in terms of the changes of the world today. So another question here, uh, and these, you know, just to kind of help continue to develop, uh, work on this, what do you think is the difference between professional development and personal development. Okay, okay. Okay, expand on that a little bit more. Whole person, okay. Okay. Other thoughts? Yeah. That's good, good insight. Yeah, Victor? Okay. Okay, okay. Other thoughts? So when we're talking about lifelong learning, we're not precluding professional development, but I think that you can see the point here is that we're talking about you br more broadly, right? In terms of the stewardship of your whole life and all the different areas of your life. So <clears throat> what I'd like to do is just kind of share with you a structure that I've worked with in terms of my own personal learning and development. And I, and, and, um, I read an article some years back by a guy named Peter Drucker. How many of you are familiar with Peter Drucker as a name? Okay. Peter Drucker is probably considered uh, the most influential um, thinker in terms of uh, business organizations and management probably over the last hundred years. Um, he's an Austrian uh, that came to the United States. Uh, he actually, uh, the, the, the Drucker School of Business up here at, um, oh, what's this? I'm, I'm going blank up here, right up the road. What's that? No, 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 no. What's that? No. No, it's, it's, um, 
I, I, I keep thinking Carnegie Mellon, but it's not Carnegie Mellon. No, it's, uh, Claremont. Claremont, Claremont, Claremont. Okay, I just went blank on that. Is that uh, he? Uh, it was his school uh, there. And and what I like about him is just, uh, uh, and I'll, I'll just I'll just kind of share the lessons and 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 his lessons that he wrote about in this article really uh, kind of form a pattern for lifelong learning that I just like to share with you. So the first one um, is is really uh, lesson number one. He said that he referred to Verde, and uh, Verde had uh, he was eighty years old when he wrote uh, the opera Flagstaff, a very complex. Uh, in um, uh, opera, and after he wrote it, he was questioned by the press and others say, why in the world are you doing this at your age? And he said, well, he says, all my life as a musician, I have striven for perfection and has always eluded me, and I surely have an obligation to make one more try. <laughs> what does that say to you? about being a learner? What's that? Yeah, yeah. Don't settle, don't settle. Right, and so the question, you know, that I have for all of us is do we have an innate drive to strive for perfection, to, to keep getting better, to, to master you know, the gifts and abilities and the things that God has given us to do. I think, and I think that a, a, a true lifelong learner has this internal drive. It's not, and every once in a while, I'm curious about that, so let me go dabble in this and look at this. But here he is at age 80, writing this unbelievable opera, right? We were talking with the staff earlier <coughs> about my dad, and... Uh, He's going to be 99 in June, okay? And uh, um, remarkable story. Uh, he, he came to Christ about uh, eight years ago, and, uh, and his life is just absolutely transformed. But one of the things that's always characterized him is that he's been a lifelong learner. And so, um, and we just, my wife and I go see him and say, Dad, you just got to quit setting the bar so high here. So he came back to the United States. He went to um, Japan uh, in 1945, World War, into World War II, and stayed there. And he knows Japanese better than most Japanese, and uh, thinks in Japanese even, you know. And, and it's not just conversational Japanese. If you want to talk to him about biochemistry or agronomy or physics, he can speak it in Japanese. And so he came back to the United States, and um, he was he was really um, concerned about the situation. And this was probably seven or eight years ago, with uh, China's growing aggressions around the world. And so he began to produce Pentagon-level briefings on on what China's strategy was around the world. And you could literally lay a world map in front of him and say, "Dad, what's China doing?" And he could take you all the way around the world and show you economically, politically, militarily, technologically, socially, culturally, what they're doing. And, and, and uh, he, he did this briefing, <clears throat> and it got picked up by the local radio station, and he was getting emails from the vice president of Mercedes-Benz in the Far East, said, can we look at your presentation? And he regularly updates it, okay, to keep current with what's going on. 
but that's that's that drive to keep learning, you know. Um, yeah, and 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 so he's always like he's frustrated with people that aren't learning. So during COVID, it was really funny because he lives in a a retirement community and he has a third floor apartment. And, uh, and and by the way, he doesn't take the elevator. He still insists on walking up and down the stairs. <laughs> and uh, and and they were, they went on lockdown, and uh, <clears throat> and I called him up because we were concerned because people were always feeling isolated, you know, and all of this sort of stuff. I said, Dad, how's it going? He said, oh, I'm doing great. He said, well, Believe it or not, I get room service, three meals a day, <laughs> <laughs> and and I don't have to go downstairs and talk to all those old people in the dining room. <laughs> He's the oldest guy there, you know. <laughs> and, and I mean, I'm always getting articles from him. Have you read this? Have you read that? And and I'll send him articles, and he says, Oh, that's great. I'm going to put that in my presentation next. But I think that's the thing is that we. I think there's something about this drive to learn also is vital for life. You know, and I just find that people at some point in time, and a lot of times it's way, 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 way too early, stop learning. Stop having, like one of you were saying, the curiosity, you know, and the interest to develop and learn and perfect. I mean, here's a guy in his 90s that taught him how to do, taught himself how to do PowerPoints, how to put together videos, I mean, do all these presentations and just kind of taught himself how to do all of that. So, you know, so that's, that's I'll, I'll let dad be the challenge here today, okay? <laughs> so that was Verde in, in terms of the drive to learn. The second one, and, and, and Kennedy said this too, he said, learning and leadership are indispensable to each other. And so when you think about that, if you want to lead, I'll just go ahead and ask, answer the question. It's indispensable. That the more that the best leaders of history, I think, are those that have really been students at the same time. And I can take you through almost any period of history and, and show you that the, that the significant leaders of the time were unbelievable learners in terms of their, their world. And this was from basketball. Dirk was one of my favorite ball players. You know, he retired a couple of years ago now, right? But what was interesting about Dirk <coughs> was that he rarely did. Uh, a lot of uh, promotional, sponsorship, commercial activities on the side. Because what he would do every season is that he would work with the coach and find one thing in his game that he wanted to take and improve to the next level. And this is a picture of him at age 37 in his last season. And he worked with this coach in the whole offseason to improve the quickness of his release on his shot. You know, and so, you know, how many of us are thinking about what is one thing I could work on this year to really take some skill, some aspect of my gifts and abilities, and in this next year, intentionally take it to another level. A lot of times we approach our learning in such a generalized way that we never really make any progress. But when you can hone in on something that you want to work on and identify, you know, that this time next year, you're going to be levels better than what you are today. Now, now you have begin, really, you're beginning to see the spirit of the learner who's trying to become, strive for perfection and mastery. What I'd like for you to do is just pause for one second here. I want to give you about 30 seconds. And I want you to write down one thing that you, that comes to your mind that you want to work on this next year in terms of your learning. Okay. And I'll check back with you in 30 seconds here.
Okay. Let's go to the second lesson here. And this is by Phidias. Phidias was the sculpture that um, created the statues that are on top of the Parthenon in Athens. And um, when he sent his bill to the, um, the city accountant, the accountant was absolutely ticked off. And, and he said, why do you charge me for sculpting the backs of the statues? No one's going to see them. And Phidias' response was, well, the gods can see them. And it reminded me of another story. Uh, when you read the, the, the biography of Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators, they were working on a, um, a project, service project, where they were uh, re restoring a home. And one of, the, one of the guys that was in the ministry there uh, was in charge of painting the back door. And he painted the inside of the door, but not the outside of the door. And when Dawson came around to inspect it, the guy says, well, nobody's going to see the back of the door. And Dawson told him, but the Lord will. You know, and so beyond just striving for perfection is, is this commitment to perfectionism, even when nobody else is looking. I think that's a high standard for a learner, that you're doing it to develop your abilities, even if no one else is looking. Of course, the Lord is looking, but a lot of times our learning is for show. And I would challenge you to learn and develop yourself for just the sheer joy and the privilege of learning and, and, and developing mastery, knowing that the Lord is looking at that too, you know? So <clears throat> this, this does come into play here too, a little bit in terms of the learning and the perfection, because I think that, what do you think here is the difference between being informed and learning? Yep. Okay. Okay. Good. Let's build on that. What else do you think? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Let's build on a little bit more. What else do you think? Yeah. Okay. In, in what way? Can you expand? Right. Right. Yeah. You're going to make a point? Yeah. Yeah. Being informed, like I'm saying, like the onus is like on the person doing the informing, but if you're learning, the onus is on me. Like I have to extract the information. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yep. Right. Yeah. Do, do you see that people confuse these two? Right? And, and then and when you confuse the two, then it really is an impediment to learning, isn't it? If you think you know, 
because you've been informed, you know, or you have information. Yeah. So I think, you know, I just, I just throw that out there as a little caution. Lesson by number, number three by Drucker, and it was his, this was his discipline, is that he was always, what he would do is that he would, um, every, every few years, he would develop uh, a plan to, to learn something specifically and, uh, and master this. And it was interesting that even though he was the foremost thinker of business probably over the last 50 to 75 years, that he didn't study business subjects. He was a brilliant historian. Toward the end of his life, he was the world-acknowledged expert in Japanese ceramics, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and so, what, but what he would do is that he would dive deep into a series of topics and things that really caught his attention, his passion, and, and he would develop an expertise on that. I would say that that was something I stumbled into it, uh, in my early, in probably in my mid twenties, and it's been one of the things, and and he did too, and it was one of the things that really broadened me, and and, and really uh, broadened my knowledge of things. Um, so what I began to do was when I came across um, uh, a, a sub, an area of, uh, of of interest to me that. I would generally spend, I would just set up a program generally for myself where I would study that topic or that subject or that area for three years. I would do a structured three-year study. And in that time, what it would do is that it wouldn't make me a PhD or anything, but it would, it would be enough time for me to understand, say, the, the breadth and the edges of that domain. And to understand, you know, who are the foundational thinkers in this area? What are the issues? And so what that did was that it gave me, it really gave me a, a deep, a deeper grasp. But what I've been doing since my 20s in these cycles of three-year projects is that I'm picking subjects that are also at the same time broadening me. Because, you know, some people will just stay in that lane the whole, their whole life. And what I felt like in terms of what God was doing for me, was that I needed to have, I, I personally needed the, a, a sense of mastery of a domain. But what I didn't want to do was be limited by that domain. And so I've studied everything from, say, marketing and economics and cross-cultural relationships to, you know, different aspects of history, communication, etc. Because, and, and, and as those things all have come together over the course of a career, what it's done is that it's given me kind of a grasp of a lot of areas. So that when I go into a work with an organization, I can talk about leadership or strategy or organization or communication or any number of other subjects that are going on. And so I would encourage you, you know, to kind of be thinking about not just kind of in general learning, but if there's an area that you want to work on, that you begin to kind of create your own little structure to say over the next few years, this is what I'm going to do. And um, for me, I think again, you know, if, if you were to do this in, in kind of serial over the course of your life, I think that you, it'll, it'll really broaden you in, in many different ways. Gandhi himself said, live as if you were to die tomorrow and learn as if you were to live forever. I love that. I mean, I don't think he was a follower of Christ, but I think that there, there's, there's, a, there's a real biblical tone to this thing in there in, in, in terms of that. Um, and as I said earlier, I've just seen too many people 
in their 40s that have just stopped. They've plateaued. And in my mind, they're just, they're just dead people on furlough in terms of where they're going. They're, they plateaued, they're coasting. And uh, unfortunately for a lot of our organizations, these are people in leadership roles. <laughs> you know, and I think, I think that, and what that, what that does is that it causes their own organizations to stop growing uh, and evolving, right? I think, you know, we've probably seen that. Uh, so, the, the, fourth, the fourth lesson here, then, is that as you develop this um, habit of learning and developing a learning program, then you need to also develop a pattern of rigorous self-assessment. And we're generally not very good about this. Drucker would spend two weeks every year looking back on his prior year, thinking about how he used his time, and thinking about what went well, what didn't go well. You know, what he should continue doing, what he should stop doing. And, you know, and then began to address his priorities for the next year. And so he was a man that was extremely focused in staying kind of right in the sweet spot of who he is. Uh, Jim Collins, uh, a business writer, are you, any of you familiar with Jim Collins' work? Some of you in there? Jim has the concept uh, for companies, and I see it uh, as valuable for in, at an individual level, which he calls the hedgehog. And and he's in in and look at three concentric three circles that are overlapping, and the first circle at the top really is the area of what is it possibly that you you're most passionate about doing. Then a second circle then is what is it that you could possibly be the best in the world at. And then the third one is just really an economic engine, in the sense that you know would the world value that. And, and, and where those three circles intersect is where organizations should be and I think individuals should be. So I constantly think about that in terms of what am I passionate about? What do I have the potential to be the best in the world at? You know, and, and does that create an economic engine for, for me and my family? And so I think, that, <clears throat> I think that this practice, though, is really good. And, you know, I would encourage you, I would encourage you to take, you don't have to take two weeks a year like Drucker did, but heck, if you knew, even if you were to just take a day every year and really sit down and think and review your year, look at your calendar, look at what you've done, look at what you've invested in, look at your performance in a lot of things, whether it's in school or at work or in the ministry setting, you know, in your interactions and think, what, what did I do well? What did I not do well? What could I improve on? What do I need to stop doing? <laughs> you know, I'm not passionate about that, and I'm not any good at that either, you know, and, and really began to develop a focus. And, and this is really increasing. This is going to be challenging, too, because this is a, a little diagram that I use in terms of <clears throat> people, in terms of their business world and their work world. What's going to happen is that you're going to eventually enter into your career probably as a high personal contributor but then you're gonna probably become a part of a team at some point in time. And if you're doing well then, then you're gonna move probably into more operational and middle leadership role, and then possibly down the road into a senior leadership role. And SAM and POC are two acronyms. You guys are loving all my acronyms, aren't you? VUCA yesterday, I'm gonna introduce you to SAM and POC. <laughs> SAM and POC uh, was an acronym that was developed by John Cotter, who's an expert uh, on leadership at Harvard. 
And he was asked the question, you know, what's the difference between leadership and management? And he said, managers, management is about POC, planning and budgeting, organizing and, and controlling outcomes. And he said, and that's where most business education goes to, by the way. Whereas SAM is about leadership. It's about your ability to set direction, create alignment in an organization and motivate and inspire people. And, and, and my observation on this is that everybody's probably doing some of both, but what happens is as your, organ, as your responsibilities increase over time is that the mix of those things changes. But if you don't realize that the mix has changed, you really become, you really um, stall yourself out and you really um, constrain the organization that you're working for because you're working below where you should be. So this is one of those areas where I encourage leaders to always be thinking about, are you thinking about the right time frame, the right values, the right scope, you have the right knowledge and the right skills for your level of leadership. Any questions on this real quick? Yeah. Alignment. Yeah. Bring things into alignment. C was for control. Yeah. Controlling outcomes. Yeah. What's a P is P is for planning, planning and budgeting, you know, and then and then the uh, the organization where you're trying to, um, you know, <clears throat> have the pieces work together, you know, and then the controlling. Yeah. Motivate and inspire. What's that? Sam? Setting direction, creating alignment, and motivating and inspiring. <laughs> That's a, this, is a, this is a whole different workshop. I just kind of, I was just trying to. <laughs> no, it's, it's fun. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So, you know, I, I would just say, we're, we're not going to take the time here today, but, you know, I think that the more rigorous your self-assessment is, um, the better. And, you know, you got to be thinking about what your work, what your responsibilities today require of you right now that you may or may not be doing. But I think that you also may need to be thinking about what I need to develop and how I need to grow right now for the next level. What happens, I think, in the, in the professional world a lot of times is if you're doing a good job, you get promoted and your life is just ruined at that point. Because generally speaking, when you get promoted, you've not done anything in your current role that's prepared you for the next role. And then they say, oh, you're struggling with your work. So now what we've got to do is send you off to classes so that you become competent in what you're doing. And so almost all the pr professional training in the corporate world is backfill and remedial. When organizations need to be thinking about how do we prepare people so that they're good to go to the next levels of responsibility. Organizations by and large are not going to be doing that very well. So my challenge to you is be thinking about where you're going to go and begin your preparations now for what you're going to need tomorrow and be thinking about that always. And what that does is that that creates that readiness, right? That we were talking about yesterday in terms of agility. 
that readiness in terms of being able to be good to go. <clears throat> the second, the lesson six is, is from priests and pastors. Um, basically there, um, you had the situation where uh, with the um, Jesuits and the Calvinists, uh, they were founded in the same year. And each developed the same habit to teach their priests and pastors effectiveness. And, and this is something, a discipline that we can apply to ourselves. And basically, it's just when you're, when you're making your assessment, write out what you're doing. And so what they would do is have, have all, of their, all of their priests and pastors write out the results that they anticipated that they wanted to achieve. And then went through this process of comparing at the end of the year and assessing how they did. You know, what are your strengths? What did you do well? How can you improve your strengths? What you didn't do well and what you should stop doing. And I would just say for most of us, we're not very rigorous in our assessment of ourselves. Um, <clears throat> I know that with the leadership groups that I work with, we use, a, we use a simple thing called a plus delta. And it's really easy because you just draw a line down the page, of the center of the page, and on one side is a plus and the other side is the delta, right? And what's, what's the delta stand for? Change, right? We didn't, I, don't, I don't like to use criticism, you know? What I would say is that what, what do we do well that we need to continue doing and maybe improve? The deltas are, what are our opportunities to improve? And normally speaking, people don't like the idea of feedback, right? Uh, you know, I mean, I think in, in the working world, if somebody says, hey, the boss would like, you to give you, would like to give you some feedback, that's probably not a conversation you're looking forward to, right? But feedback, and we'll talk a little bit more about this <clears throat> tonight, is that feedback is a gift. I mean, if we were standing here on this stage and all of a sudden the speaker started screeching because of the placement of the microphones and the speakers created that, that's feedback, right? And that's a system's way of telling us that, some, that something's off, that's not working. And we should be seeking out feedback all the time in terms of our performance. We should be rigorous in giving ourselves feedback. And we should be learning the feedback that we're getting from the environment and, and the results of what we do. But we should be seeking the feedback of one another. And we would do this plus delta because it was so easy. And what it did was that it moved the, the feedback out of the realm of a personal issue to kind of like, let's just look at the performance. Let's look at your, let's look at your swing. That's not a personal issue. You know, we're looking at your performance and we can see that when you're taking your swing at bat, you know, you're dropping your shoulder here, your strides off here. And if we can, and you can't see those things, but somebody can, and if they can give you a feedback on them, your batting average goes up. So we should be really hungry for feedback. And, and I think that having an initial uh, assessment like this and then talking it over with somebody else, say, can you give me some feedback on this? I'd really like to work on my ability to communicate, you know, uh, in a public setting or, Whatever it was, you know. And, and so, I mean, I, I'm, I was thinking about Nicholas' testimony this morning and how he was talking about how he was shy, right? And, 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 and then, I mean, he, he, somewhere along the line, he got some feedback and worked on that because what he did was unbelievable this morning, wasn't it? I mean, that was powerful and well done. And you think, okay, let's, 
Nicholas, let's kick it up another notch. Let's keep improving, you know, on this. So get in the habit of really rigorous self-assessment and ask for feedback. I know that in the groups that I'm around, it's not unusual that I was working with one program where I had a whole bunch of professional presenters. They were, they were using my material a lot. But as soon as they finished their presentation, they would march to the back of the room and said, okay, give me some feedback. <laughs> what can I improve on? And in, and in a very short period of time, we really accelerated the performance of that program. But that, that, that was their eagerness to learn. It wasn't like, oh man, you know, they, they didn't want to hear from me. Then the, and so, you know, just be clear on your strengths, work at developing your strengths. And I think that's a key too. Most people, when they're thinking about personal development, focus on their weaknesses. And the research shows that the more you focus on your weaknesses, the weaker you, the weaker you get. The better thing to do is identify your strengths and develop your strengths. Yeah. Yeah, stop doing them or, yeah, or understand. I mean, sometimes there's professionally, let's say, you're in a role where you've got, you, you're still required to do some things that you're not that good at. Okay. So you understand that uh, and then develop mechanisms to mitigate against that. So it might be like, okay, I am not a good listener, but if I'm going into a situation, let's say in a negotiation where listening is really critical, I'll bring Enoch along because he's a really good listener. And if he can see that I'm not getting it, he has permission to kick me in the shins under the table, you know? And so, you know, and so I think that you, you learn, right? You learn to develop mechanisms and, and you, and, but that's also the beauty of the body, you know, cause uh, that one strengths might not be everybody's strengths and, you know, and we can support one another that way. So, and then the last one here is by a guy named Joseph Schumpeter, who was an, um, uh, an Austrian um, economist, um, really one of the, the seminal um, economists of that age coming out of Austria. And he was a friend of Drucker's father. And a meeting um, in, in, later in life, Schumpeter confessed that early on in his life, he wanted to be known for three things. Uh, one was for being the greatest lover of beautiful women in Europe. <laughs> and then to be Europe's greatest horseman. And then perhaps the world's greatest economist. <laughs> and uh, as they joked about it, though, um, he confessed that these were still true except for the last one. And he says at this game, at this point, he said, you know, he said the legacy that I would really like to leave is that I had converted a half dozen brilliant students into becoming first-rate economists. That he wanted, an, he wanted this legacy of having an impact in people's lives. And he died five days later after that comment. And, and so I think that, you know, for us, I think, I think this is really <clears throat> what we're about here in terms of our lives, right, on earth here, is that we want to have a legacy that makes a difference in people's lives. And for all of, the, all of the drive to learn at the end, what we wanted to do is that it, it serves God in such a way that it makes a difference in the lives of people. And the more we learn and the more we develop our gifts and abilities and the, and the more masterful we get in terms of the way we live life and make our value and contribution, 
the more we have an opportunity to make a difference. And so I think that, you know, I think that for us as followers of Christ, it, it changes really the thrust of why we're learning into something really that's really beautiful and amazing, that there are going to be people whose lives are going to be changed as a result of the influence that we have. So those are, those are some of the things on that. So uh, let me just pause there, and we just have a few minutes left. We go until just a couple more minutes. Okay. Any questions here? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I only discovered after the fact, uh, some years later, after doing some assessments, that I'm just kind of wired together to want to specialize in some things in terms of learning. And, um, and, and so um, that was one of the reasons I thought I've got to satisfy that drive to, you know, to have a, a certain level of learning that, that's satisfactory to me. Uh, and, and so... But I, but I also, at that point in time, I had kind of a dual career track going because I, um, I owned and uh, was running a business, but I was also heavily engaged in, in ministry. And so I, I, I really developed different learning tracks on both sides, you know, from both stand, standpoint of both theology and my study of the scriptures and ministry, cross-cultural ministry, a lot of things like that. But I was also focusing on things that I needed to learn to be better in terms of my business arena. So I, I, I combined the two. So I don't know if that answered your question or not, but kind of. What, 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 what was not clear that I could? You know, initially I didn't, I didn't know. I just, it was random to me at that point in time. Later on, I discovered that it was a really good pattern for me. Um, you know, for some of you, it might be more, some of it might be less. I don't, I, I'm not saying that three years is, is the template for you. Yeah. Okay. That's a tough question. Anybody have any answers for her? <laughs> you know, I think that <clears throat> um, I, I would, I would almost, I would, I could almost. I mean, the, the perfectionism was the word Drucker used. I would probably, I would probably use it in my life in the sense of mastery. You know, because otherwise, you know, there are people that are so perfectionist that, you know, you, 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 even your sock drawer can't be out of order, right? And, and so that, that I'm not talking about that. I, what I'm, th I'm talking about really is that there's a, there's a striving for a mastery. I think musicians, I, th a lot, I think, are a lot of times they perform the same song over and over, but they're always trying to 
deliver it perfectly, you know. Um, I think that, that part of it, to drive to mastery is a healthier maybe way of thinking about it. And, um, and, and so it really, rather than becoming a uh, guilt-inducing thing, uh, that it really becomes really this quest. That's the challenge, you know, that there's a, there's a, there's a drama to it that, um, I don't know, I, I just, I'm always looking for that. I, as much as I do things in the public, I always come away thinking, I could, I could have done that better. I'm not dissatisfied because I see some, I see the results and I see the impact. I mean, obviously there are times where I, you know, I'm going to totally screw it up. But I think on the other hand, I'm always trying to think about, am I getting the, the impact that I could? And is there a better way to play this song? So yeah, you have a question back there. How, how do you how do you keep it going or I, I'm yeah that's that, that's a challenge too because I think when, whenever I'm working on something for that long a period of time uh, it takes an incredible amount of concentration and there there are times where it's like it's a slug because you you're, you hit a wall and you're trying to break through and you don't understand. Um, one thing that I generally do to create some pressure on me <laughs> is that I, um, <clears throat> I make a commitment to um, deliver on what I'm studying and working on. And so I was talking to the group here earlier about a program that I developed at Gettysburg. That's kind of what I did. It's been on my heart and I've been studying it, but I thought if, if this is going to come together, I've got to have some point where I'm going to deliver this to somebody. <laughs> and then, and then what happens is that once you do it, then you, th you, you realize all the things that you still didn't know, you know, and you got to keep improving. But the excitement is there because you've delivered something of value to people and people have benefited from it. And you think, I want to do some more of that and get better at doing that. And so I always bring it back to kind of how can I use this to serve others and deliver some value to others then that helps me work through the learning blocks or the procrastination or whatever it is, you know, that I have to work through. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about the different subjects that you tackled over the years and things like that, and you mentioned partly communication and development. Would you say that they were all in the same, like the, each thing that you decided to learn, were they in the same category or totally different, you know, archaeology or the genetic I'm wondering, should you be well, I think I think you can work on a category, and I, th I think there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I mean, in my own life, you know, I've worked in areas like um, uh, cultural anthropology and other things, and you think, okay, what does that have to do with this? But at the same time, I'm finding that there's things that I learned there that's applicable to what I'm doing, and so I think that kind of getting broader, you actually see you actually see more and better things to the domain that you're in. When, when you're within a given domain, I think you become siloed in your thinking and you think, okay, that's all there is to know about this. And it's only when you jump out and see other perspectives that it begins to enrich your thinking here. I, I was going to get into this, but, I, I, but we don't have time here. But I was going to just 
one of the follow-up pieces of this is on just how to read. And that, that actually ends up becoming one of my most requested workshops is on how to read. And, and you know, so for me to stretch, generally speaking, I'm, I read about 100 books a year. And, 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 it's, and it's a wide variety. And so what happens, though, that is that some of these things that all of a sudden expand new horizons for me. And I thought, OK, I, I got to get into this. And so that might set me up for my next learning project, right? And so these are not the things that I'm reading because I'm professionally required to read. You know, these are the things that I'm curious about reading. And, you know, so when I put together a program like Gettysburg, I probably read 100 books on the history of Gettysburg and the Battle of Gettysburg. You know, and the same thing when I'm thinking about the space program. And all of those things open up issues and open up things that I can bring into other areas. Does that make sense? So, yeah. How do I choose my books? <clears throat> um, there's a, usually when I start out, I try to figure out, okay, who are the thought leaders in that domain? So if you look at my books, and I have a picture of one here maybe, you can, I'll look, one of the first things I'll do is I'll look at the bibliography in the book, the index. And I'll look, I'll look at the people that the author is referring to. And what I'll do is I'll begin to see from there who are the thought leaders? Because a lot of modern day books are really just repackaging of somebody's brilliance for marketing purposes. And they're not, they don't contribute anything original. And so I'm trying to figure out where, where, who are the thought leaders, who are the giants on whom everybody else's thinking stands. And then if they're making reference to somebody else, I, I'll, I'll, I'll track that. And so generally, I, I, I have kind of a tree that I develop then in terms of who I should read in a given area and who are the thought leaders, who are the ones that are kind of pushing the edges of what's going on. And, and that helps me uh, in terms of my reading. Uh, let me get here and then back here. Excellent. Instead of, uh, instead of perfectionism, and I think that maybe that's a good that point. Goes back to the audience. Yep. In that, you know, if, if your audience, uh, an audience of people, then you know, perfectionism will drive you and drive you crazy. But so with excellence, God is the audience, and try to do it in such a way. Could I get this day right before? Right. I like, I like the concept of excellence in that regard. I think that one of the things that, <clears throat> and it's, again, this is a whole, another, um, do I have time for this first? Sure. Yeah, okay. Okay, okay. Um, to me, one of, the, one of the areas that I've spent a lot of time studying is on the biblical theology of work. And, um, you know, I think that historically what's happened is that work, the world of work and the, and the sacred world has been separated. And so that the idea is then that only the work that's in the upper story is valuable and, you know, the work that's down here is not. And yet when you look at the scriptures, you starting in Genesis, you see God at work. 
And even before the fall, you see mankind working. So if we're going to share in the character of God, in the image of God, we're going to be workers. And when you think about a ministry to the world, the one thing other than sin that every person alive shares in common is that everybody works. And yet when we separate out our theology of work from, you know, that, we have a hard time identifying not only with people in the world, but we have a hard time learning how to really engage with people because we, we give our work such low view. And so a lot of this learning, mastery, excellence, whatever it is, is about taking work. And when God looks at his work, you go through Genesis and how does he evaluate his work? He says, good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And when he gets to the end, he steps back and says, that's really good. <laughs> you know, and, and, and so, you know, I think that w one of the things that I see from the scriptures, and maybe that helps out with some of this stuff, is that one, we're, we were made to work. And, and I don't care whether it's washing dishes or putting a man on the moon, if it's done for the Lord, that's, that's, that's valuable. And there's a sense, too, in which work is worship. And in, in, in when we do it this way, what we can take the work and offer it up to God, right? And, and we've done this for your glory. That, that's, that's a motivational piece to me. And so, you know, you think the work that I'm doing every day, whether it's homework or chores, you know, mowing the lawn or doing something incredible for an organization or an institution, am I doing it in such a way that it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's a work like this? of worship. <clears throat> the, other, the other thing, though, is um, I've shared this, I think, sometime in the past, maybe with you all, Neil, is, um, you know, I, being born and raised in Japan, I, I, you know, I think a lot about the spiritual condition there. And some years ago, I came across this article that was written by uh, the publication of the Smithsonian. And this person was writing about this Bach revival in Japan. And uh, in this revival, though, what was happening is that all kinds of people were coming to Christ. And so this writer was talking to the people that were involved in, in, in uh, the classical music industry there. And they said, what's happening? And they said, you know, um, we've been listening to Bach. And Bach has taught us that God is love. And this, this is what hope is about. And basically, he was saying that Bach's music is a theology set to music. And when Bach wrote in his day, he didn't write for uh, public uh, acclaim. Um, you know, Charles Colson talks about Bach writing and just tears pouring down his face as he poured his soul into the music, interpreting the scriptures and creating music that expressed soli deo gloria, to the glory of God. And he wrote, he wrote his music for no other reason. And yet here in Japan now, hundreds of years later, people are responding to Christ because of this theology set to music. And I got to thinking, gosh, what about theology set to teaching, to medicine, to accounting, to real estate development? What if, what if we mastered 
and, and our work in such a way that the very thing that we did was an expression of the glory of God. That's, that's another part of the drive to learn to me. So, yeah. So a question on that, and even actually what Neil said about excellence, is I was just listening to some of it. it. It really marked on an impression on me just a few days ago. There's a, a husband and a wife, and the couple was, you know, one they got a new china set for their wedding, and they had to decide, all right, are we going to preserve this china set and keep this china set, or are we going to raise kids who know how to wash dishes? knowing that as they teach their kids they're going to break all these little stuff. <laughs> and he's like you know with our last cup we can show you you know what we chose so i'm wondering you know in light of the excellence and the, the mastery how do you balance that tension of all right i want to do something in a very excellent way but likely will fail a lot and break a lot of vision make a lot of mistakes you know to get to that point so like in the in the pursuit of excellence have failures along the way and stuff is that okay or is that like you're losing the excellence or, you know do you, are you hard on yourself to make them better or are you reasonable about oh well you're learning i don't think there's any learning without failure and a number of years ago there was a book that had the title failure the back door to success and so if you're not failing you're not learning <laughs> you know and 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 um and so i think that i think that um you know even our Lord expects us to learn. You know, I mean, how many failures did the disciples go through, you know, where they didn't get the message, right? So I would say, I think that we are, I, mean, I think that we do have a culture where we, we grow up where we're afraid to fail. We're afraid to make mistakes because we, there is, um, who was it? Um, oh, name escapes me on the fixed mindset and the, um, No, 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 no. There's a there's a um, professor woman. Um, anyway, the idea there's a if I can if I can just paraphrase it here, and I, I apologize, I'm gone blank here. They're talking about uh, people that either have a fixed mindset or, or like an open mindset. I don't, I don't think open is the word she's using. And so the fixed mindset are the kids that have been told all their lives, um, "You're so smart." You know, you don't make mistakes, you make good grades. And, uh, and so what they would do is that they would put these kids in a test and give them basically an impossible problem to solve. And within a matter of minutes, all of them give up because they don't want to make a mistake. Now, there's another group that said, oh man, you all work so hard. You all really think, you all really try things, you know? And so this group, you can't turn them off because they just keep going after it, trying to figure out how to solve this problem. And so I think a lot, a lot of our upbringing, either at home or in our society, will make us afraid to try because we, we view ourselves as having a, being at a certain point of accomplishment and we don't ever want to let anybody know that we can't get there anymore. And there's another group that's like, oh, we're learning, you know, we're growing, we're trying things, we work hard. Yep, we do. And there's two different. So 